Hi, my name is Nathan Cook and you're listening to HDR Brews, in other words, high degree researchers drinking coffee. This small show is designed for academics to put their research interests in the spotlight. Please sit, learn and enjoy a cuppa while we do too. Hello and welcome to HDR Brews, in other words, high degree researchers drinking coffee. This episode's researcher is Ricardo da Costa and cup of coffee is brought to you at home. I'm currently having a uh, green tea with a hint a hint of lemon. What are you having, Ricardo? I'm having a, a, a standard soya latte. So, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting question, this one. I always ask, and no one's had the same order. So I think Steph last week had a hazelnut latte, and now you've got soy. Ben had some sugar in his, and I'm like, everyone's got a different, um, a different taste, so it's good. Yeah, yeah. Well, mine, yeah, mine has two scoops of vanilla ice cream instead of the sugar. How yeah, good. Yeah, I've never had an affogato or, or whatever it's called. I'm, like, I'm, I'm meaning to have one. Um, I did actually see you drop your coffee the other day in that meeting. Did that go all over the grass, did it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so we're inside today. I was, with, yes, I was with Ricardo the other day. He has an outside office, which is really cool. It's like a, do you want to talk us through that just quickly before we get into it? Yeah, absolutely. So I've, um, because of all this, ho- the, the home um, office setup, we've got nowhere really in the house. I've got an eight-year-old and five-year-old running around jumping on me. So I've had to sort of set something up outside and I've, I've next to our fire pit, I've leveled the land and put some logs to hold the soil back and put up my tent. So I've got a tent office and it's yeah, nice and cozy. It's awesome. Um, yeah, and you had a, gaz- a gazebo as well. Is that right? Next to the tent, or was it just an all-inside yeah. type of thing? Oh, I, I think I think because I, I can't really say the name of the company, but it's it's one of the famous companies that uh, yeah they have a sort of a main tent, and then they've got the uh, the outer section which has a sort of um, uh, um, an alfresco, crates a little alfresco area. Yeah. It's awesome. I see out there, you know, just having a look at some kangaroos while doing some research. It's uh, it's a definitely something that it'd be it'd be good to do more often. I think um, rather than being in the city. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I'm writing I'm writing the papers and I'm watching a mob of thirty kangaroos jump by. It's a bit it's a bit surreal actually. Yeah, it gets that that normal um when people the more stereotypical Australian it sounds like when they think oh, I'm from Australia. You've got kangaroos in your backyard, so that's awesome. Yes, we do. We do. <laughs> Uh, so first of all, Ricardo, what is your area of research? As uh, so area of research is exercise gastroenterology um, and uh, ultra endurance uh, physiology, so extremes physiology. And so f- for the listeners, so when you talk ultra endurance, that's greater than fifty kilometres in running, is it? Or well, that yeah, that's running. Uh, so anything over a marathon is considered ultra marathon running, but ultra endurance represents. Uh, a, Time scale of exercise normally over four hours. Um, it's at that four-hour point where we start to see the body's physiology completely change. So you can't really say endurance and ultra endurance are the same. They're not. Absolutely not. Um, there are very big changes in the body systems when you hit four hours and over. Yep. And then gastroenterology. You're talking more about how the the gut's response at that four-hour point uh, to exercise. Uh, not necessarily for our point, but just uh, how the gut responds to exercise stress. So it could be resistance exercise, could be sprints, it could be high intensity, or it could be endurance and ultra endurance. 
Awesome. And so, could you, from now until then, so could you talk us please through your research pathway from beginning until now? Oh, jeez. Oh, okay. How this, long do we have? <laughs> yeah, this is the question that gets everyone. Long, yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. The long story short is um, I originally started as a professional athlete after high school, racing on the um, ITU and ETU, so International and European Triathlon Union uh, circuits. Um, I did that for 10 years, and just towards the end of my career, that's when I started university. I, started, I, I did all my training in the UK because I was based, I was in Europe racing. Um, so I started University of Birmingham, you know, with some of the demigods like Michael Gleason and Asker Jerkendrop and um, Ron Morn, all those guys. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so they're, they're my mentors. Um, and then, yeah, I went on to uh, do my clinical dietetics training at University of Liverpool. And then I went on to do a PhD in that area still, uh, up in uh, University of Wales in Bangor, which is yeah um, up near uh, the Liverpool area. So it's sort of north, uh, northwest of, um, of Wales. Um, that was in exercise uh, immunology. And I was funded, uh, well, my PhD was funded by the Ministry of Defence, so the UK Defence Ministry, looking at illness and infection rates in special operations and in recruits and one of the biggest problems there was illness and infection and dropouts for, for special ops and training because of illness and infection they wanted to find out you know what what stresses is causing this increased illness is it the exercise is it the sleep deprivation is it the food restriction is it the ambient conditions so my research is all about looking at these stresses individually and combined i think one of my phd studies is probably one of the most difficultest that i've ever encountered for any participant which was um, two, two nights of sleep deprivation uh, with uh, food restrictions, so 10% of energy intake. And on both days, they had to run two hours of exercise. And then after all that, they were put in a, a cold chamber at zero degrees and then, until they got hypothermic. Uh, and then we were measuring all the... And at the same time, being prodded and probed and injectors etc so <laughs> hats off to all the participants on that one and i and i still got n of 12 through the study and that was a three a three repeated trial so when when you know when phd students come to me and say oh i'm finding it hard to recruit people just to do a 30 minute survey i just oh you know i think you need to be work hard, harder on your recruitment i mean if i can do that i'm sure you can get a couple of people to do a couple of surveys yeah, it's, that sounds definitely different to me jumping on a bike and doing a bit of dehydration stuff for an hour and then having to do drink some milk and have a wee, you know, like being all those things that you've yeah. explained, you know, on, and on triple account as well. So, and w were they special forces participants or were they just general public or they were? No, all of these were um, uh, similar population as the military because we can't, we can't use the military population outside of their military uh, occupation. Um, uh, so it was just matched population. So your standard university um, uh, student. Wow. So yeah, uni students signing up. That's that's pretty interesting. And so, so yeah. what what happened there? So where did, where did you go from there? Yeah. So from after that, those studies, I, I got my first lecturing position at Coventry University, um, and. Uh, that's when I started my postdoc uh, research, which which was in ultra endurance. And the reason why we got into that is 
with my position, we're running a clinic, a sports nutrition, sports dietetic clinic. Um, and a lot of the athletes that are coming to us for help with those undertaking these ultra endurance multi-stage races, either you know, for like Marathon de Sables or the Transalpine you know, eight-day race, um, or people doing challenges for charity, like for example, Dr. Andrew Murray running from you know, uh, north of Scotland all the way through to the Moroccan Sahara Desert, 78 days of you know, marathon a day. And they were, they were needing some nutritional support. Uh, but we, this was novel to us. So we went into the literature to find out, you know, what's the guidelines and recommendations? And there, there wasn't any, it just wasn't uh, for ultra endurance. Everything up to marathon and I, and you know, triathlon Ironman, everything's there. Uh, heaps of it, but in the ultra endurance scene, there's absolutely nothing. So that's when we started our research, first exploratory, finding out what, what's going on with the body physiology to these races, what were the problems, and then coming up to solutions to those problems. And, then, and the reason why we got into exercise gastroenterology is simply that we went, we did exploratory research in the ultras and found out the main problem was just gut issues. And then we went into the literature saying, okay, how do we manage these gut issues? We went into the research, well, there's nothing there. There wasn't, it's all about, yes, exercise causes gut issues. Okay, how do we solve it? No one was researching, no one was coming up with solutions. So that's where we got involved. So it's more about helping the people where trying to help the people that were coming to us to, to seek help. That's what we got into this research area, just helping the end users pretty much. That's amazing. And so what, obviously it's still going on now, so you're at your lecturing position there and you're doing some, um, I guess, consultant work. What was the what were the main problems or what were the main solutions that you came up with for these, you know, 78-day races? So, yeah, the main thing was um, actually just uh, trying to, to tolerate the amount of food needed to maintain that nutritional status. Uh, and that, and it all came down to the gut issue. So actually consuming and tolerating the food and getting into the system while you're doing these repeated races. Um, and we're seeing that the nutritional status as the days progressed, it was just getting worse and worse and worse, but not, not because of, you know, hypermetabolism, uh, or anything, you know, internally it was simply because people were finding difficulty actually consume the food either because they had loss of appetite they had flavor or taste fatigue they didn't want the food or they had gi upsets so it was more sort of you know that um that external factor between the external environment and internal body systems yeah especially if you so or you go sorry no, I was, just going to, I, was, um, I was just going to say that, um, yeah, in terms of prevention and management strategy, that, that's what we're doing now. We're the last, I guess, six years have been looking at different management strategies. And so you would have come from, did you go from Australia, then onto the racing circuit, into uni, and then did you come back to Australia? Yeah, so I... Um, in Australia, I finished high school over to Portugal and Spain. So I was racing on a Portuguese and then a Spanish team. Uh, and at the same time, I was flying from the into the UK to do my studies. So it was a bit of a, a nightmare, a nightmare <laughs> educational process, flying out each week to do a race and getting back to uni. Um, and then, yeah, then from there, lecturing positions uh, in Coventry and then from Coventry, Came out, came back to Australia in to, uh, 2013 to help develop the sports dietetics at Monash Uni. That's amazing. So, were you, you headhunted or you wanted to come home? 
a bit of both. So yeah. I, I wanted to come home, so I was looking for jobs in the area, and then Professor Helen Truby put out an advert that they were looking for a sports dietitian at Monash to develop the course, and then he yeah, contacted her, and then um, it all led from there. Because uh, in the UK, I, I was the course director for um, sports dietetic training for all of the UK that leads into that SNR registration. So, you know, it makes sense having, you know, the lead sports dietetic educator come to Monash and help develop the course. Yeah, amazing. And, and so here now, and you're doing, you're doing lecturing as well as research at the moment, is that right? Yeah, yeah. well, help, helping and trying to develop the sports dietetic training, but the system in Australia is different to the UK. Yeah. So, yeah, just trying to adapt to the Australian system. Mate, and yeah, we, I guess, you know, obviously we've got SDA and DAA and things like that. Are we, are we a little bit behind the ball in terms of sports nutrition? Not, not, in sport, not from the scientific and pra- practice aspect, absolutely not. We're mm. the world leaders in mm. sports dietetic practice, especially like people like Louise Burke, and we got John Hawley, Greg Bridcox, uh, Gary Slater. We've got all those people leading the research and then informing the guidelines. Mm. But in terms of sort of profession, um, a profession structure for accreditation and registration, yeah, that's different. It's, mm. it's, it's more set up in the UK than it is here. Yeah, I definitely felt when I was at the SCA conference last year, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of hanging here with, you know, and you presented there. I'm like, these, these are the big guns of, you know, you know like, like you said, Gary, Greg, you know, Louise. It's, it's, um, We've got a definitely a, hu- a huge team down here in Australia, which is great. So that's awesome. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and so what are you currently working on now? So you're doing research, obviously. What's what what's um, tickling you at the moment? Tickling the... <laughs> <laughs> so we just... We're similar as before. We're just trying to come up with management and uh, prevention and management strategies for uh, something that sort of we've, we've explored and, and um, identified, which is exercise-induced gastrointestinal syndrome, which is basically the changes that the, the occurs to the gut when you when you start exercising that causes, you know, the symptoms and health implications. Um, so we've done a whole heap of stuff like gut training, FODMAPs, dehydration and hydration, um, carbohydrates and proteins during um, uh, internal cooling strategies so now we're we're looking at the gut microbiota and uh, how that influences the syndrome so that that will be the next step um, and at the same time you know explore some of these nutraceutics because there's a lot of dodgy research out there providing some false claims on a lot of nutraceutics that saying you know it's, it's positive for the gut during exercise the experimental designs are extremely poor without any proper control. So I think we need to step in and run these studies properly to actually find out truly is there a, is there a beneficial effect or not. So that's sort of the, the next five years of research. And so what's a, uh, what's a nutraceutic? Nutraceutic is just a nutrient. It doesn't necessarily have any nutritional value but has a, an impact on different body physiology that is supposedly claim to have a beneficial effect. But the classical one is, now for the gut, you've got your prebiotic and probiotic. Yep. All and right. They're the classical ones. And so, you know, like you said, there was nothing out there at the beginning. It's quite a unique, um, I would say, race or time frame. You know, like a lot of people aren't, you know, if you're going to run a, your first marathon, you might run it in 
five hours and then over the time you'll go down from there. Um, but then again, you're not running very fast if you're doing it in five hours either. So I, I, for, for myself, I think 10K is my top distance. I'm like, you know what, going over that, I'm, I'm kind of out of here, in and out in tents and go home. So what is, yeah. and are these, um, I'm just trying to, trying to explore, understand, like these races aren't really, you know, in Olympic competition or are they or are they not in the general public? It's more like those really out there, you know, um, thrill-seeker type exercises, aren't they? Uh, yeah, it's not in the Olympics. Uh, however, um, it might be because now the uh, World Athletics, which originally was the IAAF, they have now introduced uh, a World uh, a Trail uh, Ultra Marathon uh, Championships. So we do now have you know twenty four hour or trail up to a hundred kilometer um, World Championship races as part of the, the, the standards. Um, governing bodies uh, race um, calendar. Uh, so it's not it's not in the mainstream Olympics. It might mm. be coming, but it is part of the, the sort of world's European and national championship circuits. Um, but in saying that, it's a sport. So ultra, I guess, uh, I wouldn't say ultra endurance. Ultra endurance can encompass anything. Like ultra endurance is uh, motocross racing, um, uh, 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 open sea kayaking, open sea rowing, uh, um, open water swimming, um, cycle races, ultra marathon, adventure and expedition, uh, etc. Mm. So it encompasses all those sports, but the classical ultra marathon, um, uh, it's those particular races are exponentially increasing in, in participation and race organization more so than any other sport. And it's what we, it's what we call endurance inflation. It's that you've got your record, and it's more the recreation runners are taking these up. So you've got, like you, like you just said, you've got ten kilometers fun run, and yeah, a lot of, that's where people start. Ten kilometers, they finish that now. Yeah, that's great, fun. Okay, what's the next one? Oh, half marathon. They do half marathon. Oh, yeah, great. What's next? Marathon. Then they go, oh, I'm going to try triathlon. Then they go to the Ironman triathlon, and then oh, I've done Ironman triathlon. What's next? Then that's the next step, the ultra marathons. And people have started, you know, 10 years ago, they did the fun runs, the marathons, and 10 years on, now we're getting an exponential growth of a lot more people doing ultra, ultra endurance events. And that's now we're seeing, because more people are doing it, we're now seeing more health implications and more health issues associated with these races. Definitely. And for those people, like, for example, um, athletes, if for people who aren't familiar, like, they, they need some changes in races, changes in performance, like 1% increase in performance can, you know, get you over the line for the gold medal or for the, to get on yeah. the podium. And so for people looking for like nutrition strategies, you know, sleep, um, recovery, things like that, it's very important to, un mm -hmm. like, how can I get, you know, a legal benefit in this race, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And so what do you, what is the advice that you give to people? Because you get to that four hour, you know, say greater than four hour like a 100k race or a four day race mm. there's quite some strategy involved where do you rest do you stop when do you eat like there's no necessarily yeah. like best way to go about it is there yeah no no absolutely uh, so there's two approaches there so first one as you just said it's um is this person elite or is this person recreational now for the elites of course we're going for what can we do to try and enhance performance as much as possible because that's what they're there for they're there to win they're there to get the prize money it's, it's what they live off. It's their wage. It's a different approach. 
with the recreational, it's all about enjoying the race, enjoying the experience and quality of life. So it's, it's too different. We don't really care about, you know, if they improve their time or get personal best, that's great. But if they have a good race and fun race, it's naturally they're gonna improve their times anyway. So first of all, you know, what are we going for? Performance or just um, uh, satisfaction and reduce health risks associated with this race. And then the second one is that um, uh, we need to take an individualized approach. So we have we have a general guidance and recommendations which we've supported and catered towards. But the people we work with, I, I can't answer your questions and what advice do I give because it's completely different to each person. Mm. So for each person we help, they come to the lab, we run them through the appropriate uh, exercise tests and feeding challenge protocols. And then we identify what's their energy requirements, their fuel use, their feeding tolerance, their gut damage, their systemic immune responses, their malabsorption, I mean, the, the works. If you want, we can even take some muscle and look at your muscle fiber types of glycogen and protein synthesis and all that. Um, but yeah, that's a bit more of an invasive process. Um, so once we have all that data, we can identify, well, okay, what, what's causing the problem and how can we modify the diet to help that person either improve performance or have a more comfortable and better race. So. I can't answer questions of what advice because I don't give any specific advice. I give total advice depending on the data that we get from that individual test. I'm, I'm really glad you've elaborated on that question because I know even last week in your, in your presentation um, with uh, NSA, people need to understand that everything like nutrition, you know, you come to a dietitian to get some nutrition information or some guidelines or advice for its recommendations. It's all very tailored, it's contextual, you know, and people online, Instagram, all the stuff, looking for the quick fix. What can I do to, you know, shed weight yeah. or to look as best as I can quickly? It's like you need to sit down with someone. You need to understand the whole context. Why are they doing it? How are they eating? What are they eating? When? You know, and it's not just food. You know, like sleep recovery, all those things, like immune system, everything. So I'm glad that you elaborated on that just to let people know that nutrition is not uh, yeah. as simple as your calories in, calorie out, folk. So... No, no, yeah. not at all, not at all. And I mean, I can just add one more thing. There is that um, um, is uh, I, I mean, I'm a researcher. I do group and cohort studies, and we report group and cohort findings. Uh, but we use these any findings we get, we use them as a guidance, not as a rule. Um, and and we use based on the individual results we get in the lab, then then we can, that will be the rule to that individual. Mm. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, so, no, definitely. And then for, this is a bit confusing. No, it makes sense. So for, you can even put it down, for example, like for someone who's 100% celiac, it's a rule that you don't eat gluten. Like where it's not a guidance, it's a rule. If you do it, you'll you'll feel upset. So whereas like guidance, yeah. like yeah, have two grams of protein per kilo body weight as, as maybe as higher than that for muscle gain, that's a guidance compared to something yeah. like being celiac. Um, and so you said, you know, you've got five years of research you're looking at. What what can you see beyond that? Do you have any expectations of findings or what you think will come out of the next couple of years before moving on to something else? Oh, geez, I can't. Yeah, I just don't know. I just can't say because, you know, some the findings we've had thus far, you know, sometimes they're surprising. We, we go into a study thinking, yeah, well, we're, you know, this is a hypothesis. This is what we're going to find. And suddenly it's the complete reverse. Um, 
we, we find the complete opposite. I mean, a classical example was the FODMAP study, the 24-hour FODMAP study in athletes. You know, everyone knows that FODMAP can reduce symptoms in IBS and therefore, you know, we can reduce symptoms in athletes. And we did. We found a reduction in symptom severity in the low FODMAP group versus the high FODMAP group uh, to, uh, to our um, exertional heat stress protocol. Um, but in in interestingly, the symptom incidence was the, was the same in both groups. So no matter what the FODMAP content is, if you're prone to get symptoms with the exercise stress, is the exercise stress going to cause the symptoms? The FODMAP can reduce severity. But the main interesting finding was that the actually high FODMAP group, but the high FODMAP, was protective against uh, intestinal injury to the exercise. So actually, the low FODMAP group created more symptoms, uh, created more damage to the gut. And there, there are two mechanisms because of that. We're not, we won't go into it, but it's like the finding is, you know, going into exercise, what do you want? Do you want symptoms and damage the gut and have possible health implications? Uh, sorry, do you want to reduce symptoms and but have damage and reduce the gut? Or do you want to have the symptoms, but at least protect your gut against any health implications? You know, what do you want? You're going to choose. Yeah. There is a medium. There is a medium we can go for, but that was the findings. Like, choose what you want: symptoms and protect the gut, or no symptoms and destroy the gut. Yeah, and because you wouldn't necessarily someone who's an everyday runner or athlete, they wouldn't know what they wouldn't feel damage, would they? They just feel symptoms, so they wouldn't know if That's the da it. damage so is occurring. They will think the symptoms is actually causing problems and damage is actually not. It's, the symptoms are actually protecting, and the reason why you're getting symptoms is just because you've got food along the GI tract, which is actually protecting the epithelium. Whereas on the other side, you've got no symptoms. That's because you've got no malabsorption, no nutrients on the GI tract, but it's that that's causing the uh, hyperperfusivic damage. And the, the third option of not, not racing is not an option either. They're like, oh, we'll just don't run, and they go, well, hang on. Like, what's the point then? So, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, research <laughs> exactly. is hard. Yeah, like you said, you know, you, you kind of don't know. You have to wait for the next finding to, I guess, push on and see what, what, what is next, um, which is exciting, yeah. I think. And I, so I'd like to tell you, to, oh, well, like you, sorry, I'd like you to tell us uh, one of your favourite papers of yours and then something that you've recently read or read over the time that would that you'd like the listeners to maybe read. Oh, jeez, okay. That's yeah in a tight situation. <laughs> uh, I'll probably, my, 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 my favourite paper was probably the gut training study because mm. that's the one um, which most athletes have, act, uh, when they've applied that gut training protocol, have actually improved their symptoms in races. So it's the one we've seen have the best uh, end user outcome. Um, and uh, it, it clearly shows some nice results holistically, not just specifically. Um, in terms of a recent paper, oh geez, oh god, there's so many. I can't say. There's just so many. I, it's... <laughs> I'm, I'm in the same boat Sorry. as you. No, yeah, no, it's good. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm only six, seven months into my PhD. I'm like, there's just so much oh. knowledge to know. There's so many papers. It's, it's, yeah. un it's unbelievable the amount of any topic, any question you have. There'll be a meta-analysis, a systematic review, a you know, a review, then there's 10 individual studies and it's like, I don't know where to go, where to read, like what. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, then you, you know, you got to focus doing on doing your own work. So you can't be reading all the time because then you won't, you know, you've got your own production, you yeah. production to do as yeah. well. 
do, do you want to take us through that um, that gut training study? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I guess the background for the gut training study is that um, the gut is very um, uh, has a lot of um, plasticity, so it has the ability to adapt to uh, what you do to it. So, if you you know fill up the stomach, it has the ability to stretch. If you uh, provide a lot of nutrition in the intestine, it has the ability to translocate more of the uh, um, transport proteins to the uh, enterocyte surface. So there's a lot of plasticity. So if during exercise, since the gut shuts down, so during exercise, the gut literally shuts down. So gastric emptying, digestive juice release, um, absorptive um, capacity is all reduced. However, if you can, during exercise, if you can force feed yourself to keep food in there and just keep it pumping through the system, maybe uh, we'd be able to improve its ability to gastric emptying, release the digestive juices and absorb nutrients. So um, what we did was over two weeks, so it's a training period. It seemed like you're training your muscles and your muscles adapt to that stress. We wanted to stress the gut during exercise over a two week period. So that's what we did. Uh, we've got three different groups and one group, yeah, over two weeks, the athletes, um, ran one hour a day while consuming a big uh, carbohydrate dose during exercise. So actually more than what their body, what their muscles can oxidize in that period is actually pumping in. It's more, it is actually too stressed GI tract. Um, uh, one group had a sort of a supplement based carb formulation. Another group had a food, so equivalent energy, uh, equivalent carb content, but a food based source. And then another group had a placebo. So exactly the same texture and size of the formulation, but had no nutritional value. Uh, and that was a challenge to actually make the placebo. So taste, texture, smell, look all the same. That was hard. It was like two to three months of work just to try to get that right, um, trialing different uh, recipes. Um, so yeah, after two weeks, so uh, every day for an hour, going out for a one hour run at 60% uh, VO2 max and, and shoving these you know, massive dose of carbs yeah, down your gut, you know, spread over time. So every 20 minutes, zero, 20 and 40. Um, they came back into the lab to redo the gut challenge. And what we saw was both the food group and the, um, and the supplement group, there was a 60% reduction in gastrointestinal symptom severity. Um, the, there was an increase in blood glucose availability and uh, there was, a, so in the training, there was a, a, an absence or complete abolishment of malabsorption. So in the first trial, we saw every participant, every group resulted in malabsorption of that carb dose during exercise. So actually, what they were consuming during exercise, not all was going to the system, some of it was being malabsorbed. But in the two gut training groups, we did see a reduction in... Um, in the uh, uh, in the malabsorption and in the in the actual supplement group, the one that was the same formulation as the trials, it was a complete abolishment. So in the first trial they had malabsorption, but in the second trial it's complete abolishment with a, a subsequent or paralleled increase in blood glucose responses. So uh, meaning that the two weeks of gut training was was able to adapt to the guts to tolerate the volume and concentration of food. 
uh, increase, reduce the malabsorption, increase the absorption and contribute to increased blood glucose availability. Um, and at the same time, what we saw is the blood glucose was going in, but it wasn't being taken up by the muscles. So there wasn't a muscle adaptation. So there was no increase in carb oxidation rate in response to the increase in blood sugar levels. So interestingly, um, we get, we're getting a gut adaptation, but we're not getting a muscle adaptation. It's just hanging around in the blood. So maybe it needs a longer time for muscle adaptations. And Gregory Cox has done some previous work which showed that uh, it was a three-week three week dietary protocol was able to increase the carb oxidation rate. So maybe if we had done the gut training for maybe uh, three weeks or four weeks, we would have seen you know, the full shebang gastric emptying, absorption, glucose availability, and increased muscle utilization. And so say if you, say, you know, ate a banana on your bike ride or whatever, and then you're in a race, and it was, it was hanging around in the blood, it didn't get used by the muscle, as soon as you stop, is it going to get shunted to, like, you know, um, glycogen for recovery, or is it just going to yeah, happen? Absolutely. You, if yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if it's in the blood, remember, you've been exercising, so the muscle... Um, the muscle glycogen content is suppressed and the enzymes responsible for storage are overexpressed. So that blood glucose will just be pushed to the muscles and stored. So mm. it's incorrect in to say that that will be pushed into the liver and going to de novo and lipogenesis. So that won't be transformed to fat. You've got some space in the muscle glycogen. Yeah, amazing. And so this is really important for, I guess, that under, obviously, <laughs> probably still the ultra endurance guys, but that, that, that below four hours, like a triathlon or a, uh, an Ironman, a lot of general public would see people strapping muesli bars to their bikes or they'll have a half a shot of Powerade next to their runners in their transitions. And that's where this is important for, for those guys who are running out of glycogen to be able to continue their exercise performance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So it'll be important for those that need carbohydrates during exercise. Uh, it's just, just bearing in mind that, um, yeah, once we reach the glycogen depletion phase, the body will kick in its, you know, predominance uh, of fat oxidation. Now, just because you're increasing fat oxidation doesn't mean you need, you don't need carbohydrates because the reason why we consume carbohydrates during exercise isn't necessarily just to provide the muscles with fuel because at the end of the day, no matter how much carbohydrates you consume during exercise, during the muscle glycogen depletion phase, it won't be enough to, to meet the energy needs. You'll always have to rely on fat sources. Mm. But it's more to maintain blood sugar levels because as soon as you go hyperglycemic and blood sugar goes down, you can't maintain performance simply because of the side effects of hyperglycemia. Mm. So um, carbohydrate intake during exercise is essentially important just to maintain glucose homeostasis and try to keep that exercise um, uh, load stable whilst the fat is kicking in to do to contribute to its main energy uh, needs amazing it's so it's so now that i'm like obviously went to the conference last year i did this sda course like uh, not um uh, i guess um not provided what, what can i say not exposed to this type of you know I, I didn't do ben's course at griffith so i wasn't exposed to this type of research yeah, yeah. and this type of nutrition and it's, it's completely different to you know they say you see general public versus you know an athlete or a an active individual like your nutrition recommendations in terms of you know your exercise goal your performance as well as body composition that's all completely different like um yeah, obviously you still yeah, want to yeah. have your your health you know decrease saturated fat increase fiber fruit and veg all those things which are good for everyone but for you know depending on your goals it's really cool to 
for the general public to understand why they say, well, hang on, he's a marathon, he eats a pizza, what's going on there, you know, or they get a bit jealous, <laughs> they get a bit jealous, and it's like, well, hang on, he's run, he's running 100 yeah. hour, 100k weeks, you know, so, yeah, it's awesome. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, ha- last question, Ricardo, how's your coffee? You probably haven't had a chance to have a sip, maybe one or two? It's halfway, halfway. Yeah, yeah, halfway yeah. I had I had one this morning, and I was like, hang on, I've got a podcast, I've got to have to get something, so, yeah, now no, it was good. Um, Thanks so much for coming on. I do. I really... have about eight. To, I have about eight to ten a day. Yeah. Is that full shots or just? Well, sometimes double shots. Yeah. Wow. And, and yeah. is that is that a, a taste thing, a, a preference thing, and an <laughs> no, energy that's thing? An addiction, I guess. It's just, <laughs> yeah. It's just the academic getting used to. I need something to sip on while you're just working away. It's yeah. It's literally an academic thing. It's just where's my coffee, and it's just constantly all day just sipping. Yeah, I um, yeah. I, I had a a podcast with Chris Irwin, and he's the same. Like you should see his mug at the office. Like it looks, it's like that. It's huge. And everyone knows him for his big oh. mug, his big mug. So um, he just drinks it all day. I love the taste of it. I reckon I could sip on, you know, an espresso every now and then throughout the day. Um, but I just got to figure out, you know, obviously it's important as well. It's a, it's a, you know, an addiction thing. But it's a good supplement for when you want to have a good session at the gym or a, a good run, or um, yeah. and yeah. then also you just got to yeah. time that around bedtime as well. So that's awesome. Yeah. I yeah. um. Thanks. Um, the stress response. The stress response associated with any caffeine shot in a coffee is far less than any stress response of academia. So <laughs> it's going to cause no... The stress that you get from academia is far greater than any magnitude of any coffee can give you. So it's like yeah. it's, not, it's not impacting the health because the health issues are already there. Exactly. Uh, you know, I'm experiencing that myself. You know, it's getting close to the end of the year. I was think hopefully uh, getting some papers under my belt and... Um, you get an email from the supervisor and you go, hang on, I, just, I need to go get a coffee. Like, it's, it's, an in, it's the instant, um, uh, I guess, response to seeing the stress levels rise. So, nah, it's good. Th- thanks so much for your time uh, this morning, Ricardo. I do really appreciate it. Uh, not at all. All good. Thank nah, you for inviting me. No worries. Great. I ho- hope pe- the listeners enjoy uh, learning about gut en- enterology, is it? Enterology? Yeah. Exercise gastroenterology. That's the one. Thanks, Ricardo. To finish off, as always, thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it as this is a passion of mine. Don't forget to leave a review. It helps other people find the show. And please share this episode on your social media or tell a friend to continue spreading the message of the Cooks community. You can sign up to our weekly email by clicking the link in the description of this episode and follow us on our Instagram and Facebook at the Cooks community. Until next time, remember to breathe.